Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman. My guest today is an author, a chef, a TV personality, and I will say she has the distinction of, I think, being the only celebrity who my extended family has chased through an airport to go and say hi and uh, tell her how much they love her. And uh, you probably already love her. And if not, you're gonna by the end of this conversation. Welcome, Vivian Howard. Hi, thank you for having me. Tell me about where you are sitting right now, both very specifically your surroundings and then uh, the town you're in. Um, I am in my uh, colleague's closet, uh, <laughs> wrapped up in a blanket because they keep their apartment very cold um, in Kinston, which is uh, the, the town where my, my restaurant is. Yes. And please shout out all your restaurants. Uh, I have Chef and the Farmer, uh, Benny's Big Time. Uh, handy and hot and getting ready to open a restaurant in Charleston called Lenore. Because you're opening businesses during a pandemic because you, like all chefs, cannot stay still. Well, no, it's just sometimes there are a lot of things that are in motion and, and not even uh, something like COVID stops it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was doing a panel for IACP this weekend about mental health, and we got into a discussion. I was, I'm really curious about this because we've been, we've been doing this for a while now. So we are recording this toward the end of October. And we've been, you know, all different parts of the country, we've been navigating it different ways. I'm recording from Brooklyn, New York, where we just got slammed so, so hard by uh, this pandemic. And we were all trying to figure out how to ask each other, how are you? And that question doesn't, I don't know, it's, it's a very loaded question, because sometimes you want to give the direct answer to it. Sometimes that doesn't even cover it. How do you like to be asked how you are? if that makes sense. Um, you know, that's such an interesting uh, question because, you know, every every email I've opened up in the last, you know, eight months has been, I hope you're well-ish. Uh, <laughs> Considering <laughs> pandemic-ish, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that it's kind of like the handshake. Um, you know, we have always asked how you are, but we really don't want to know. Um, <laughs> so it may, it may, it may actually go away with, with this because I have a, a, a hard time, um, asking such a loaded question when, when we know that the answer is going to be, um, just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I know that this is, again, it's all translated differently in different areas of the country because, you know, we we caught the very first wave of all of this in, in New York. And I so distinctly remember the last time that I was sitting in a restaurant uh, at full capacity. And I've, you know, seen it sweep through different parts of, of the country, you know, including and, uh, you know, I know, I keep bringing this up on the podcast, but it's front of mind, uh, in front of mind to me, you know, to South Carolina, where my mother died of, of COVID uh, there. And it's, it's been a really interesting thing to see how restaurants and the clientele have adapted with it. So are your restaurants currently open for dining? Well, so that's a, a, um, a complicated question. And it really yeah. speaks specifically to what you just mentioned. Um, you know, yeah. uh, Benny's is open um, because it's 
it's pizza and pizza we all have come to understand makes sense in this moment hugely <laughs> it's this weirdly pandemic has been good for pizza sales from everything i understand yes i would uh say so and we've been doing takeout and delivery there for um you know five months now mm -hmm. uh chef and the farmer uh has been closed pretty much the whole time and we're trying to reopen this thursday um oh wow and lenore the uh Handy and Hot, which we opened during the pandemic, is in Charleston. And so oddly enough, I spent a lot of time in South Carolina this summer and then also North Carolina. And the way that the two states have approached it, um, have approached COVID is just so drastically different. It's radically different because, you know, I, I think, you know, that like my uh, all of my in-laws are in North Carolina and they've been taking it pretty seriously and masking up and, you know, and all that. And a couple of my grandnieces uh, got sick, um, but people have been taking all the precautions because they've seen, you know, the cautionary tales. And then where the rest of my immediate family lives in South Carolina, you know, my sister works in healthcare. So, you know, she's been very, very careful. My dad uh, is immunocompromised. And, but they said they, nobody around them is wearing masks. They're not taking it seriously in the same kind of way. And it's really, Really distressing to me. It's very distressing to me um, as well because you know, opening a restaurant in in Charleston, you know, the restaurants are packed, and yeah. and and I'm operating, uh, you know, a certain way, being safe, you know, socially distancing, all the things, and and you come to this realization that um, it's not just about how safe you are; it's it's just the um the local you know the local belief wherever you are um really uh determines how safe you you can be and i'm i'm not the master of my own destiny uh all the time it seems <laughs> <laughs> we none of us are <laughs> um but in north you know and i think the the interesting thing is is that in north carolina a lot of restaurants have continued to just do um meal kits and takeout and mm -hmm. that's really the tone that the whole state seems to take. Um, but it, it's very different in, in Charleston, at least. Yeah, it's it's been really worrying to me because, frankly, I don't want anybody to have to go through what my family uh, went through. And I've been yelling it to the rooftops and stuff. And it's just been a tremendous source of frustration to me. So it's been actually really gratifying to see um, my extended family in North Carolina, like really take it, it seriously with this. Um, at the same time, it's so uh, you're poised in such an interesting and prescient uh, kind of way for a lot of this because, you know, you you have a congratulations on this new cookbook. It is such a winner. I expressed my my feelings in food and wine about uh, what a gift this cookbook is um, because it is it's such an empowering thing. And I think about um, for folks who don't know about this uh, this cookbook is called uh, this will make it taste good. And I can attest to the power of uh, these secret weapons that Vivian has because uh, when we met five years ago. Um, in person after I'd been a fan of hers for a, a long time. She came into the place where I was working at the time and made a dish uh, that included a condiment that I still make to this day. It was uh, a sweetened vinegar that goes over roasted root oh, vegetables. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, we still I, I I brought home some of that extra. I have made batches of it. My husband is obsessed with it. 
And this cookbook that you make, it's it's really so perfect for this moment because it is very uh, – it's these building block recipes that are made special by these um, other uh, – Talk if you would talk about what some of yeah. these things are that you have crafted. It's it's such a brilliant way to do a cookbook. Yeah, so it's um, this will make it taste good. Really represents the way that I cook at home, but the way that I cook at home is heavily influenced by the way that I've always cooked in my restaurants. And you know, I think a lot of chefs have you know these these you know go to um, recipes that they use all over their menus. You know they these things that they insert into a, you know, a dish that is relatively simple and it suddenly becomes, you know, a Vivian Howard dish. And yes, it's like, it's a language. Yeah. It's, this is your, this is your vocabulary. This is like my chef's pantry. Um, and the interesting thing is, is that all the flavor heroes um, are relatively simple. They're not like, you know, multi-day recipes of active cooking time. They're, they're, they're not heavy in technique, but they are the things that I, I go to over and over and over when I'm trying to make something simple, really exciting. And because they are, you know, a blend of my personal cooking style, like they have, I, I gave them names that kind of personify what they do in food. So there's a chapter called Little Green Dress because it's this, this um, cross between chimichurri and salsa verde if they had a baby in a bed of olives. Uh, <laughs> and it, it goes with, it's called Little Green Dress. Adopt me, please. <laughs> <laughs> because um, it, it's called Little Green Dress because it's like that little black dress that goes well with everything. There's um, a chapter called Community Organizer, and it's it's basically like a, a Southern-style sofrito that gets added at the beginning or at the end of a lot of uh, slow-cooked or quick-cooked dishes and it brings it brings flavors together um there's a, a chapter called can do kraut um that is all about uh, a really simple sauerkraut that i make that i use in a, a a ton of different dishes so it's meant to like empower the home cook um to you know make make these things and then learn how they work in your kitchen and I, the idea is to become nimble and um, excited about cooking again, but not increasing the time we spend cooking. As you know, so many of us who, you know, I had fallen in into the habit of uh, getting takeout a lot, yeah. <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot. And then, you know, that if you're cooking every single meal day after day, which I realize is an absolute reality for a lot of American families, just not mine in particular, where, you know, it's a it's a combo of, of takeout and cooking. And I always feel really lucky when I have time to cook. And but also, you know, we're we're, you know, we're trying to you know, watch our finances, uh, you know, in a lot of ways while my husband was furloughed and while I was furloughed a day a week. And we were trying to be, find the pleasures in life and cook into every meal and wash yeah. every damn dish. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and even though we're just a family of two, it still really builds up and becomes a lot. And, you know, your cookbook, you know, granted, there's no way you knew this was that people were going to be stuck at home cooking all of this stuff, but it really, you know, is a, it, it, you know, it's such an empowering thing for this because, it, you know, you can mix and match all these things. And then what I really liked, uh, you did an interview with our editor in chief, Hunter Lewis, recently, and you were saying about how it can get people to a place of not using a recipe when they cook. Exactly. I mean, these, the flavor heroes are 
um, things that you can add or layer into things that we all pretty much know how to cook. Um, and at, at the start of every chapter, there's, you know, the recipe for the hero, but then there's all these just suggestions. I call them no brainers. Like, yeah, obviously little green dress is great on eggs. It's also great on baked potatoes with olive oil. It's great. Um, you know, folded into macaroni and cheese, like, and none of those things require a recipe. Um, and I, I want people to, to take this book and like on a Sunday, instead of doing like traditional meal prep, you know, where you're like roasting Brussels sprouts that are then going to get reheated and be twice as awful as they were in the beginning, um, <laughs> to, you know, make, make two of these things on a Sunday and, and see how easy it makes bringing dinner to the table throughout the week. And it's just a slightly different approach. So one of my great regrets uh, right now, you know, we're, we're living in such a strange time, is that my copy of Deep Run Roots is on my desk at in my office that I haven't oh, been no. to since mid-March. And I love that book. So, you know, it earned space on my desk at work because I would, you know, read through it so much. And what I love about it uh, so much is and you and I have talked about this and I want to have this conversation is that it honors the place that you are from which is really important to my particular family because that is where my uh my mother-in-law who died a few years ago in her mid 90s and who was a massive fan of yours that's where she's from that's where she grew up that is where her uh her her mother who family called uh me mama uh grew up and cooked the same food that you talk about. But it, in my family, like it, when I go to North Carolina, it's celebrated. It's all of these things. But I've seen my husband, you know, sometimes struggle with his uh, Southern identity in some ways. And you talked to me through this moment um, that I'm actually writing about right now because we're doing this uh, Thanksgiving thing uh, where it's all about one dish without which it is not the holidays. And this has become uh, something that is very like emblematic of, of Thanksgiving and Christmas for us. But it is the squash casserole dish that is on the face of it, really a pretty humble thing. It is cooked down squash. He says mm -hmm. you almost have to burn it and onions. <laughs> and uh, there's an egg for binding. There are fistful of of uh, shredded cheese and their potato chips <laughs> on top of that. And it is the most heavenly thing. And I described this cooked down squash to you. And my husband at the time, it was before he knew some of our friends better, was really nervous about bringing this to Thanksgiving dinner because it was sort of fancy food people. And he was bringing this potato chip top casserole. And you you actually let me record uh, something, um, you know, saying to him to have pride in this. And I want to talk about uh, what it means to be where you're from and what it's what it means to be uh, proud of that place. Since we're all spending so much time in those places that we're from, I want to talk about using your voice uh, for that and about having having those those kind of roots. Why was this so important to you? Because I know you tried to escape it for a while when you yeah, moved. Yeah, I mean, to New York. I mean, I grew up um, in rural eastern North Carolina and just really saw myself as a city person and wanted 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 to get out of the country and I was always ashamed of it growing up you know I was ashamed that my parents 
maybe didn't speak, you know, perfect English and said things like over yonder. Mm. And uh, who taught you to be ashamed of that? Like, were there people with what was the thing in your life that was saying like, hey, this isn't something to be proud um, of? You know, I think that it was uh, multi, multifaceted. I think it was, you know, seeing uh, television for one, um, you know, on the, the shows yeah. that I watched and the people that I admired, none of them came from a rural place. There were, you know, um, the yeah. Be Beverly Hillbillies, you know, was something that was on mm -hmm. a lot in my house. And, and I saw them represented as like dumb and ignorant and, um, you know, juxtaposed with, you know, sophisticated, uh, Californians and the, who were exactly, exactly. But as a kid, you can't read between those lines necessarily. Right. Um, and I, I noticed I went to boarding school when I was 14 and I noticed that, you know, my mm -hmm. accent was different. My experience was different. I hadn't done a lot of the things or been a lot of the places that all the other girls have been. And so I just, I, I, I think I, I, slowly became hyper aware of my other than. Um, and I mean, I think we yeah. see this all, I mean, it's, it's very clear today that, you know, people who come from rural places are, are believed to be a certain way. Um, and I think often mm -hmm. um, perceived to be less than. And so, you know, there were a lot of signals that, that told me to be ashamed of that. Um, yeah. And I feel like this is a thing where, I mean, part of why I wanted to talk about this is I feel that divide is being exploited in a really huge way right now when everybody can enjoy a damn squash casserole. I mean, that it's, uh, to me, that's, you know, sort of a fundamental thing that, uh, you know, this, this sort of divide between city and, and more rural is, is a thing that is being weaponized when there's probably way more in common. than Absolutely. We I mean, thought. we all want the same things for the people we love and we all want to feel pride in our squash casserole. <laughs> you know, we all, um, <laughs> you know, we, we, I, I think that we are all so much more similar than we are different. And one of the things that we all share is food. And we, we are, you know, what we eat is so, so much a part of our identity that if, if we are afraid to share it and afraid of what it represents about us, um, then you know, then we're ashamed of ourselves. And I, that's not something that I realized until I moved back here and I opened a restaurant and I found that like my biggest strength as a cook was reinterpreting the food that I grew up eating and really celebrating the things about it that made it delicious, the celebrating the dishes that meant something to me personally, meant something to my family. Um, and, you know, I realized the power in that um, kind of just unabashedly sharing who you are uh, by sharing the food that's important to you. Um, I mean, that, sh that shame has been weaponized, too, to make people feel lesser. And that, that just absolutely breaks my heart. I mean, I grew up in Kentucky, 
And as soon as I left, you know, I didn't think too much about it other than the fact that the people from the other side of the bridge in Ohio made fun of us. But I got to Baltimore and people would hear, oh, you're from Kentucky. Like, why are you wearing shoes? And I was like, what? what the hell? What is this, this stereotype kind of thing? How does this help anyone? It, it was just, it was so frustrating to me. And I did you know, probably try to downplay my Kentuckiness for a while and, and say, well, my family isn't really from there and stuff. And now it's, you know, people say, where are you from? I'm like, well, I, you know, I've cooked plenty of burgoo with squirrel, with squirrel in it. And I make really good bourbon slush. And I serve that at parties in New York. And I know that you spent some time in New York and I know that you were, you know, working and cooking at places uh, with our, our mutual friend, uh, Scott Barton. And I'd love to talk a little bit about how he sort of helped you find some um, of yourself. Yeah, I, I was a server at this restaurant called Voyage in the West Village. And this was like 2001 and the restaurant was just opening and Scott Barton was the chef. And the concept for the restaurant was Southern food via Africa, which is something that we talk a lot about today. But, you know, in 2001, it was not on the tip of many people's tongues. And I, mm -hmm. I was so fascinated um, learning about the dishes that he was cooking and every dish had a story behind it. And it was very clearly Southern, but it was not Southern that I recognized. And it actually, uh, for a period of time, added to the shame that I felt about, you know, where I came from, because, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't grow up eating, you know, shrimp and grits or, um, you know, any any of the foods of what I now realize were the port cities like New Orleans and Charleston and Savannah. Um, mm -hmm. And so I didn't see myself in, in Southern food, but I knew I was from the South. And it wasn't until later uh, that I realized that, you know, what I grew up eating was indeed Southern, um, but more specifically the food of like the frugal farmer, the rural South, where there was, you know, an emphasis mm -hmm. on preservation and, uh, you know, not wasting anything and um, grains and vegetables and stretching meat, a little bit of meat across the plate. Um, but that's not something that I, I recognized immediately uh, while working at Voyage. Yeah. So what was there a breakthrough moment that happened? So you were working front of house. Were you, or... I was, yes, I was working front of house, but then I started working in the kitchen, um, for free before mm -hmm. my, before my, um, my shift on the floor because I wanted to, I just wanted to get closer to, to it all. I wanted to see, um, what cooking was like. I'd worked in restaurants my, you know, all through college and, had never been on the other side of the line. So. so was there ever an inkling in your head that this is something that you might want to make a living at or did it kind of creep up on you? Oh God, no. My mom always, uh, for her, cooking was a burden. Yeah. And so I, I never saw it as something that I would uh, <laughs> choose to do or something that would be, you know, acceptable to my family. Um, but I, you know, once I started working in the kitchen, I found that I really loved the camaraderie of the experience. I loved the idea that we worked as a team and succeeded or failed as a team. And I, I was good at it. So, you know, we all wanted to continue doing things we're good at. And so, you know, that's how I ended up in the kitchen. But I didn't really, I didn't realize um, the, the value of 
the food I grew up eating until I had moved back here and had opened Chef and the Farmer and had attempted to cook um, versions of Scott Barton's food. <laughs> right. <laughs> and really just wasn't, you know, hitting a lot of home runs. And um, so I, I guess it sounds cheesy, but I looked deep inside myself um, to try and access my cooking soul, which would have been, you know, the food that I most understood, which is the food from Eastern North Carolina. It's, I mean, it's like that Dorothy Wizard of Oz moment yeah. about cooking meals <laughs> together three times and, and find that thing. Was, was there a particular dish that it just sort of, you know, you, you had that, that moment of like, oh yeah, this is mine. This is, this is yeah. ours. This is a thing. Like what are, what are some of those moments? Yeah. You know, so I'm from, um, you know, Eastern North Carolina is really known elsewhere for whole hog vinegar based barbecue. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, but when you live here, you don't eat, you know, you don't barbecue a pig every weekend. So I grew up um, every Saturday morning, a man that lived in our community, and I think had some kind of maybe owed my dad money, um, but didn't. But in lieu of paying the money, he brought us four barbecue chickens every Saturday morning and Ooh. and put them on our um, on our kitchen counter. And my bedroom was adjacent to the kitchen. And I woke up on Saturdays to the smell of like smoke and char and vinegar and um, and that that to me barbecue chicken cooked on the coals that perhaps a, a, a pig had been cooked on uh, is really what sings Eastern North Carolina loudest to me. And so the dish that I think was my breakthrough at the restaurant was um, this blueberry barbecued chicken where I'd made, you know, a, a blueberry vinegar because I had mm. way too many blueberries and they were <laughs> going bad. Um, and so in an effort to preserve them, not to waste them, I made a vinegar with it. And then I made a, an Eastern North Carolina kind of vinegar based barbecue sauce out of that. And, you know, we put that on the menu uh, Friday night and it shared the menu with things like uh, smoked goat cheese ravioli with like tomato petals. And uh, we had the blueberry barbecue uh, chicken with, you know, a peach slaw and um, a sweet potato salad. And it was like every ticket that came in, there was at least one of those on it. And I was like, okay, this is people, this speaks to people and this has me really excited and this tastes great and this is who I am and this is the food that I'm gonna start cooking. I love that. And I, I, I actually associate sweet potatoes with you a lot and I, I will. Yeah. I am thrilled to tell you that I'm sitting about six feet away uh, on the other side of a, of a glass door from my uh, whiskey barrel full of sweet potatoes that I'm growing uh, right oh, now. Wow. It, yeah, in a tub with okra. Uh, it's something I do every year. I grow a whole lot of different kinds of okra. Um, and it's, they're all weirdly like I, I, this in over this past year, I've sent out okra seeds to a lot of friends because I knew we were going to be at home with our gardens and because it's something I do every year. And I'm so obsessed with the okra that I have a red okra and okra flowers tattooed on my arm. Wow. And, uh, but I, I have these things that I grow uh, every year um, because I wanted to make sure that they could work in Brooklyn. And these are foods I care about. Moreover, they're, they're foods that my husband cares very much about as well. 
so I have uh, a bunch of these are I, I grew uh, Diane um, sweet potatoes this year. I'm gonna use the leaves because I feel like I have to use absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. Just took picture, pictures of all these okra flowers, but I feel like all these okra seeds I sent out to people for some reason everybody's okra is blossoming right now. And I have some in front of the house as well. So if you walk by my house, you will see okra pods standing up uh, from containers. (laughs) And I'm growing sorghum and tomatoes and and all of these things. And it's near the end of October in Brooklyn. And that sort of keeps me, uh, you know, grounded in a certain amount of things. It's what helped me keep my sanity over the summer. Um, When you work with farmers, how do you have that relationship where, because you are, you, you are so in touch with the earth and its cycles and, and you've spoken to me about the, uh, about the, 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 the runners and uh, and the uh, the sweet potato leaves and all of that. How do you, what are those conversations like with a farmer where you're figuring out like sort of do they custom grow things for you? Do they uh, do you no. how would that look like? Um, you know, I I ha- I certainly make requests, and if I hear about you know a, a new, I think the the ingredient everybody's talking about this year is this honey nut squash that. Oh, I made some last night. Yeah. <laughs> so if I hear from upstate, yeah, if I hear about that, you know, something like that coming, you know, down the pipeline, I certainly make requests. And but for the most part, you know, I I I take what they want me to have. You know, um, if someone is rolling in in Roma string beans, and then then I'm going to be the person that that helps them make sure they sell all their, their vegetables. Um, you know, same thing with, you know, proteins, you know, trying always to buy whole animals because that's a really hard thing for, for farmers to, to always move an entire animal. Um, and, you know, I, I, it needs to work for the restaurant, but it also really needs to work for the farmer. So I try to be the, the glue that helps make it work around their CSA boxes and, and all the other challenges that they have, um, you know, being farmers in today's world. Yeah, I feel like chefs have had a, a, a lot of power with these to become sort of produce influencers in some ways because people aren't going to necessarily try something if they haven't had it before. So if they see it on a menu, it is a really big deal. Um, I've seen you you've had such an interesting career trajectory because you've had you've become an ambassador for your region for home cooking for you know for restaurants for all of these different things and that is it's being a chef is a really complicated thing increasingly because you know it used to be sort of you're just in the back and you cook okay now you have to have you know you have to have a media presence you have to uh you know increasingly speak your values and speak them very publicly and and politically and you have to have merchandise and you have to have all of these these things how did you uh, sort of evolve this because it's a whole lot of different muscles. You're good at all of these different things. Uh, did how much of this came naturally to you, and how much has had to be like a learning process? Oh my gosh, I was just having this conversation with um, a friend of mine who's a chef, and and she was like, you know, when did we suddenly have to be like spokespeople, <laughs> you know, right, right. Um, and, and do everything well when really what we do best is, you know, cook. 
Um, you know, I think that I, it's not necessarily come all that naturally for me. Um, but like being, you know, thrust in front of the camera and, and really kind of having like a, a, a very quick, uh, lesson in, um, how to, how to, how to lead through example, um, is, is really what I find, uh, works best for me. You know, I live in, I live in Eastern North Carolina. There's, you know, this is, uh, a lot of the community that surrounds me does not share uh, my political views, um, Mm -hmm. or my social views. And that has proven to be a really big challenge. And particularly at this moment in time, when I'm looking, I'm looking for connection to my community and I'm looking, um, for a sense of home and I'm looking to, to feel prideful about where I come from, but I'm having a really hard time doing that. And, um, it's heartbreaking. I mean, I spend a lot of my time in upstate New York. My husband bought a, uh, an old Gothic stone church uh, in the late 90s in, uh, in, in this fantastic little community that has really come together in a, in a really beautiful way. And uh, weirdly, there have been a couple of reality shows out of there, too. Uh, and it's, you know, it's been a really you know lovely thing. And but really right next to it on the edges of town are uh, really upsetting lawn signs, Confederate flags, uh, sort of uh, hate speech, white power signs. And these are the people who I, you know, probably shop with side by side at, uh, you know, the grocery store. And it's painful uh, to, to see that and to, uh, to know that uh, they, it's, it's, the, the, these times have brought about um, really to the forefront these uh, painful divisions, and I and it it just breaks my heart because I keep thinking like we actually all want a lot of the same uh, things. We want healthcare. We want you know freedoms of various sorts. We want all of these things, and it's just been infused with um, you know such hateful rhetoric. And it's it it, it just you know I'm I'm just sort of in the thick of this, and it and it it hurts. It, it hurts, hurts a lot. It hurts. And, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, in Eastern North Carolina, um, I would imagine or what I can tell by all the lawn signs and all the flags and, um, is, is that, you know, it's largely, uh, Trump country. And, you know, as the daughter of a farmer and as a chef, um, you know, who's lived, you know, most of my life here. It's incredibly frustrating to see that because, you know, I can tell you that there's not a farmer um, in Eastern North Carolina that has not been affected negatively by climate change. They are very aware mm-hmm. that it, it exists, but, you know, the person that they are rallying for won't even admit that it's real. The same thing, you know, um, we don't have high speed broadband internet in rural Eastern North Carolina. It makes like operating on the same level as the rest, as urban um, environments, it makes it almost impossible and it pushes Mm -hmm. us further and further behind. Yet, you know, their champion has, that's not important to him. So I'm just, you know, I see these fight, these, I see the issues and I, I, and, firsthand and I can't wrap my head around, you know, what, what is up and, and what are they hanging their, their, their 
ballot on exactly. And it's just, it's making me feel very lonely, Kat. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know uh, this, this feeling I have, you know, I was thinking after I had seen this ended up in the local paper, but some of the signs on this one particular lawn that is sort of like technically at, like on the edge of our town. And I think like, I have a friend who, or I have very, multiple friends who are every single one of those things that you just said you hate on, on there. And I think like, I want it, I want this place to be a haven, uh, you know, for, for people who I love. And the thing is, I, I feel like I don't know how to, to get past that, to get past this sort of like blind hatred and people voting against their own best interests uh, in, in a lot of ways. And I, you know, I try to be respectful of people's views, but not when they're harmful to people who I love and uh, restrict their freedoms. And that is, uh, you know, it is a really painful thing. I know I keep bringing that and I'm like, you know, a hugely privileged, uh, you know, uh, you know, cis white married woman with every kind of protection here. And I just, I don't know, I'm, I'm nervous about the, the next few weeks. I, I uh, am I'm worried about the well-being of friends of mine whose whose unions might not be recognized after uh, all of this um people's rights and freedoms and I don't know it's uh, are we going to be able to sit down in a restaurant again after all of this happens and look one look one another in the eye I you know I'm I'm worried very much about the same thing and um I I, I certainly hope so. I I certainly hope so because I've never felt so lonely at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and you've been and you've been such a tremendous advocate to you know my 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 mother in law who I brought up before. Um, you know she by the end of her life really couldn't see very much. I mean she was sharp as tack still, uh, but she would um, lean in close to the TV when you were on. Um, and, and when she heard that I knew you, it was, uh, it, you know, it was, uh, that's the biggest star I could have mentioned to her because you represented with pride where she grew up. And it was, and like I said, my, my uh, niece and nephew chased you through an airport. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that or not. I do. Kate and I Jason, do. they are so wonderful and they, they love, you know, they love their state and they're raising their family there. And uh, you are, um, you know, you, you, you make them proud of a place that they hadn't always been told they were allowed to be proud about. And that is really an important and beautiful thing. So I know you feel lonely and I'm so sorry, um, well, but I please mean, know that it, we see it out here. Yes. No, my problems are, are, are not, um, not big. I, I, but I just, I, you know, we're talking about pride in our place and pride where we come from. And um, I, I, I hope that we get to feel that again. And I hope I get to celebrate it again. Yeah. I mean, I uh, right now early voting is going on in New York, and uh, I I've been a poll worker before, and it's it, that is a grueling day. I've I've done it during a regular election um, before, and it's uh, I, I did it for the midterms a couple of years ago, and that is a a nutty kind of thing. But I I have a few friends who are uh, I, I I didn't have time to switch my registration to up there, but I have a few friends who are being poll workers this time, and the funny thing is. Is at a polling place, you have to have a Republican and a Democrat, and they were actually having a hard time finding Democrats up in the county. 
Oh, wow. So she's feeling uh, pretty isolated up, up there right now. But, you know, the thing is, you take everybody's uh, ballot with a smile and you do all of the things. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's vote knock on everything gets counted. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. I, I have to I have to have hope. And, you know, I, I we don't talk about uh politics too much at the uh dinner table when i'm when i'm with my in-laws as much as i love them i don't always necessarily want to hear things but uh, it actually really the thing that gave me some hope uh recently was that um my my brother-in-law who's in his early 70s and he's a really really you know lovely man and and very church going and everything and stuff but you know also sort of of his generation never said anything ugly but you know, maybe didn't always understand that people's actual identities and, and names and stuff like that are really important to them. And we've had conversations about that before. And he recently like called up my husband and said that his church has banded together uh, with, with a black church and they're doing work for Black Lives Matter. And wow. Yeah. And uh, he lives, he, he and his wife live in Charlotte and they're, they're doing that. And, you know, there are uh, maybe some less political people who maybe had been quietly political in the family, like speaking up some more. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's given me some hope. And- well, I was, you know, I too have, um, have been very hopeful. You know, we made this show called Somewhere South, which the whole, the whole goal of it for me was to, to, shine a light on stories, um, people's stories that don't often get told. And, you know, um, and, you know, we did a lot of like, we had a lot of hard conversations on that show, you know, about um, race and opportunity and how people find themselves in this country and and the work that they do when they get here and the the foods that make this place feel like home and you know I was really nervous about that show coming out in my community because it was you know a a a, a different focus and and a but a very specific and purposeful one but I was so um so relieved and hopeful at the reaction that that people had in my community and you know my dad um is you know 80 years old and uh a a former tobacco farmer lived his whole life here um and he was like you know you made us think and Mm -hmm. and that was like for me like oh my god this this is working i've gained these people's trust through you know five years on a chef's life like i'm imagining your your mother-in-law you know she felt she trusted me yes very much and so you know if vivian's doing this and and vivian is you know believes this you know i thought maybe if they watch that and they listen and they use that trust like maybe it'll soften the edges around the ways they feel about their neighbors um i maybe we haven't done quite enough but i do think that people um are listening and and can and can can reshape the way they feel i mean these representations on on tv and in all media it's it's so important because you talked about the beverly hillbillies where you know they were quietly like super wise but played as bumbling but i see how my husband watches andy griffith with such love and uh because it you know plymouth is is where his me mama grew up 
And I think it was sort of based, I guess it's technically Mount Airy, but he said walking through Plymouth was the same kind of feel and kind of thing. And I see his face when he watches Andy Griffith and it is something that is so familiar. He's like, that's how everyone, you know, people I grew up with, you know, me, mama's friends and stuff. That's how they talked. He's like, this is like sitting with me, mama, you know, is, Mm -hmm. is, is hearing, hearing these voices and having kind of, you know, this, this lovely life that is not, you know, there are a couple, you know, characters on there who are are played for laughs and stuff. Barney Fife, so is going to be bumbling and stuff, but that is just by virtue of it. (laughs) But, but, you know, it's the Southerness is not the butt of the joke. Right. And I think that is, uh, you know, that's just been a, I think a really vital thing for him. And, you know, I, you know, I've been a long time lover of your, your shows and just your, you know, your presence and in general, and it just, and I know how it makes our friend Bill Smith feel too, uh, to, uh, you know, another good man of, of the, of the region feel to, you know, have his people represented in this deeply, you know, positive way. Um, I know, I believe there was a rally in your town last night. Um, oh my God. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But to have this sort of alternate view of saying like, hey, you know, we're we're good people out here and we're not this stereotype and we're, you can't demonize us uh, for just where we're from. And we are, va- you know, valuable people who make kick-ass squash casserole. <laughs> right. And we're multi-layered. You know, I think that, you know, no community is 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 one thing. And we all have um, life experiences that have made us um, see the world a certain way. And I think rather than like pointing and demonizing, you know, at at rural communities for, you know, um, voting against their interest or, or leading a certain life, you know, I think perhaps we look at the 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 things that have happened, the experiences that they've had that have shaped the way that they they see the world and maybe have shaped some of this fear that they feel. Um, I you know, I because as we said earlier, I think we all want the same things um for the people we love. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I think that's that's it's gotta be that. And you know, I now it's it's kind of, it's such a funny thing, like because you were you know told Douglas be proud of that particular dish, you know, it's now what he brings to Thanksgiving dinner and, and to Christmas dinner. Take it that, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it, it is requested, in fact. And you know, the couple of times that we've had Thanksgiving with people who maybe didn't have it before, there's been a little bit of nervousness. But anybody who's had it before now vouches for it. And when this recipe, which is going to be up on on Food and Wine soon, um, but I you know, I, I saw as one of my beloved colleagues was going through the recipe that I submitted because, you know, he had had to call his mother years ago and get her. She's like, there isn't a recipe. You just make it. <laughs> and he's like, no, I got to write this down. <laughs> so yeah. he, he did that. And thank God he did that. And uh, but I just I was trying to find where he had written it down. I was like, oh, damn it. I just have the instructions. So I like went through my phone notes and found it eventually. And I was putting it together. But my my colleague was sort of writing it out in this much fancier way, like use, uh, you know, unsalted uh chicken broth yeah. and, salt- and i was like no 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 oh no ma'am <laughs> and then she looped me into the conversation with the test kitchen and i was like this has got and you know and they were being sort of very delicate cooking the squash you could still see slices and i was like this has to be a burned up mess yeah, <laughs> like it has to be mush cooked down to spreadable consistency is what I, i'm imagining yeah <laughs> It's squash jam, basically. It's like squash and onion jam. And then like, it's got tater chips on top. What's not going to be good I know, about that? I know. What, so do you put the potato chips on before it goes in the oven or after? 
Uh, so it's been in there for a while. So you do the the squash and then the the cheese on top of that, and let it get to a certain state of bubble, and then uh, put on the chips and put it back in there until they're browned a little bit on the top. But you do not leave it under the broiler, as we have uh, learned one painful uh, thing. <laughs> Painful New Year's Eve, as we learned, but we just scraped it off and still ate it because it was still delicious. I mean, yeah, and if you burn the chips, you can just put new ones on. So, what is going to be on your Thanksgiving table? Um, you know, we have by chance just been traveling the last several Thanksgivings, so we'll be uh, at home, and I want to have you know all the all the traditionals and all the bells and whistles, because, you know, I think if, if this year has, has meant anything, it's meant, you know, family celebrating with food, um, or family, let me, let me rephrase that family medicating with food. Uh, (laughs) Definitely. that. And so, you know, I, my favorite thing to make, um, for Thanksgiving is always the stuffing. Uh, Because, you know, Mm. it can always be, it can be a little different each year. Uh, I find it to be the most satisfying um, adventure on Thanksgiving. And it's the thing that I did when I was a kid, like we would watch, um, our kitchen was very close to the living room and the TV was facing the kitchen and I would sit at our kitchen counter and um, my job was like breaking up the saltines and crumbling the uh, Pepperidge Farm uh, crumbs and and mixing the stuffing. And so that's just something that I've always, always done. My mom's stuffing was kind of gross. She just put like uh, raw onions and raw celery in there. And this is before I, I knew that most people might sweat that in a pan um, before it gets folded into the stuffing. But now I know all that. <laughs> so what is, I, I am so fascinated by people's stuffings and their dressings and the difference between what is yours? Well, so I I may have just been calling it stuffing, but that would be me being shameful of my upbringing because we always called it dressing. It's dressing. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I always put some kind of pork product in there. So Mm -hmm. maybe some sausage or some Mm -hmm. bacon. I, I like to, um, bake a a cornbread the day before and I'll use the leftover, the crumbled day old cornbread with some crumbled saltines. Uh, I sweat down onions and celery and garlic with thyme and rosemary. And then I'll combine the the bread pieces or the saltines and the cornbread and the, the pork product, whatever it is, and some chicken broth or ham hock broth, any kind of flavorful broth, um, and pour that over top and let it soak in and then bake it. Um, that's probably the most simple version. You know, a lot of my sister always makes, um, oyster dressing, which I've never Mm. quite gotten down with. Uh, and that's the canned. Is that the one with the canned oysters? Yeah, you take the smoked yeah. canned oysters, and um, she'll put like clam juice in lieu of, of chicken stock um, to moisten it. But you know, I, I prefer the pork products in it. I mean, it is one of those things that is so, so personal. I wrote a story over the last couple of years called like our stuffings ourselves. And I was trying to sort of make a point that there were regional ones. Turns out no, because people move. So it's just whichever <laughs> one you, whichever one you have adopted as, as yours. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, 
that sounds so wonderful. And I can't imagine like people not coming together <laughs> over that. And yeah, I've, I've one last uh, question for you just because I, I have a sneaking suspicion. Um, do you make sausage balls? Oh, hell yes. I, <laughs> okay, somehow I knew you would. Please tell me about your sausage balls. Um, there's actually a recipe in Deep Run Roots for my sausage balls. So I have sausage balls infuriate me because um, my sister, my sister was always the the cook in the family, and she made sausage balls with um, bisquick and cheddar cheese and sausage. And I'm I, I I'm every sausage ball of hers I've ever eaten. I'm like this could be so much better. But I also can't stop eating these. Uh, So I make my sausage balls have the cheddar and the sausage um, with much less of the the starchy thing that brings them together, much less flour. Um, And so they're they're denser and they're moist. And I serve them with apple butter because I I love cheddar and apple together and sausage and apple together. And so I, you know, I fixed my sisters. She, good thing she's probably not going to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Vivian's sister, because uh, for some reason I just had a feeling you would have one. Um, I got my hands last year on some extra hot niece's uh, sausage, and I brought a, a tray of sausage balls to a party. And the the one other person who was there from North Carolina, he pretty much went into the corner with the tray. So I actually knew that he would that he was from North Carolina, and I made him a special plate of them separately to take. Yeah, they home. are. I guess I, maybe I didn't realize that they were you know a regional thing. Thing, but come to think of it, I've never seen sausage balls anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I learned it from a, a North Carolinian. So um, thank you so much uh, for this and just for everything you do. And if people want to find all of the stuff that you are doing, okay, let's list off your projects. You are you are selling your beautiful stuff online. And where can people yeah, get that? So I would say the hub to find all things me would be vivianhoward.com and mm-hmm. you know obviously my books are there but also our online version of handy and hot which is a specialty baked good um uh bakery essentially that we have you'll find that sort of thing there as well as some really cool merch associated with my new book so everything vivian howard should be under that umbrella and you've and if you want to say the names of your shows and where people can find those as well, and we can also put this in the show yes, notes. Yes, so there's a Chef's Life, and that's available on Amazon and PBS, and Somewhere South also available on Amazon and PBS. And you also have a video series. Yes, I do this uh, video series called Just the Tips, and it's um, <laughs> uh, something that I do on. Instagram and it's really meant to teach you uh, to cook without recipes. So you know, I'll I'll, I'll break open a particular subject like uh, asparagus. You know, all the things people I see people doing wrong with asparagus, which starts with putting them on a baking sheet and putting them in the oven and cooking them at 350 till they're soft and rubbery. Um, so you know, things that we all think that we're doing right, but I think that you could be doing wrong and um, just in an effort to make all of us better cook. And I will note this was award nominated. Yes. Yes. You know, we applied um, uh, to IACP uh, for a digital, um, a digital story 
uh, award. And, you know, we didn't really even fit into the category, um, but we felt so good about the tips and, and the, all the people the tips have touched (laughs) 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 and and also the novel way that we do it with a you know it's a blend of video and slides information slides and there's a lot of humor in the tips as you can tell um, by me just constantly saying tip. Uh, and so we applied and it was just such a, 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 a surprise and delight that we were included in the nomination. So hey, congratulations for that. Thank and, you. and thank you for everything you do. Thank you so much to our guest today, Vivian Howard. You can find more about her at VivianHoward.com. And I'm just grateful for conversations like that, that, you know, we're all we're all just humans together. And it's really easy to forget that sometimes in all of the noise that we're hearing, especially during this political season, where, uh, you know, a lot of politicians on all the sides are finding it in their own personal and best interests to uh, pit pit us against each other. And good golly, we would be much better served if we could take a moment and just find that humanity and find that squash casserole and just see what we have in common together more than what separates us or what we have been told separates us. Um, Whatever is in your heart, I hope you go and express it at the polls um, in the coming days. And like I said at the beginning, this podcast is part of Food and Wine Pro, which is a section of the magazine and the website and you know, someday again, when we get to do in-person events, part of that as well, where we're really talking about the issues that affect people in this industry that we all love so much. Um, you know, we're telling business stories, we're telling, we're talking to the people who actually work at restaurants about how they are feeling about, you know, being back in business and dealing with the public. We're talking about uh, restaurateurs who are trying to figure out if they're ever going to be able to reopen again, people who have, you know, pivoted and found some solutions for them, people who are considering making changes in their careers. Uh, But these are stories that we're, we feel really, really lucky to be able to tell. So you can go to foodandwine.com slash fwpro and all the stories are there for you. And while you are there, you can sign up for the newsletter that comes out on Friday, written by our editor-in-chief, Hunter Lewis, with an assist from me and Oset Babur, our associate restaurant editor, and with some words of wisdom and meditation from Kelsey Youngman in our test kitchen, who is also a certified meditation instructor and one of the calmest and loveliest human beings who I know. Actually, you know what? Everybody who works at Food & Wine is a delight, and I feel really lucky to work with them on a regular basis and uh, including and especially our producer and Tarasena who has taken on this role like a champ it is a joy to get to work with her on this uh, every week and you know if you want to keep hearing this podcast and they keep letting us do it um, it really really helps if you leave us those reviews and stars in anywhere you get your podcasts and it just it really helps a lot it helps it uh, pop up in the algorithm and uh, means that more people will find out about it and we can keep having these conversations that you know I, I like to have them and I hope you like to listen to them as well um if you want to share them with a, a friend loved one colleague uh random people on the streets strap a bullhorn to uh, to your car and and yell out about listening to communal table I'd take it that'd be great 
as well. If you have people who you want to hear from on this show, I'm pretty easy to find. Kitten with a whip on Twitter, or you can email me at cat.kinsman at foodandwine.com. Most importantly, go vote and also take care of yourself until the next time.